Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com slash laser. Two and two, Ramirez to Moncada. Yoan drills it. Way back right field. Look out. Goose It's a three-run shot. Neither did yes. Another absolute blitzkrieg. Oh boy, that one a line drive to left field and bring him home. Three in a row, Abreu has the last one and Tim's having a party. In the air, left field, Eloy Jimenez to the line and gone again. Four in a row and a 7 nothing lead. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of August 17th, 2020. As you heard in the intro with Jason Benetti on the call from NBC Sports Chicago, the White Sox accomplished some history on Sunday by hitting four home runs in a row. That was the fun part of the weekend against the St. Louis Cardinals. But Saturday was quite the downer. We'll recap what happened against the Cardinals and discuss Rick Renteria's role in it. The White Sox are 500 with an 11-11 record, and Detroit is rolling into town. Cody Stavenhagen of The Athletic is their Detroit Tigers beat reporter, and he'll join us to provide us the latest on what's happening in Motown. And could we see Dane Dunning making his Major League debut this week? At the end of the show, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. But first, let's take our temperature about this 2020 White Sox squad. And joining me as the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. How do you feel about the 2020 White Sox 
after this weekend series against the Cardinals. Great, okay, not worried, a little bit worried, or panic? I'm down to a little bit worried just because mainly they, the Larry Garcia injury, it, it's almost like the White Sox roster right now is like a Jenga tower. And when you're getting kind of later in the game and you really have to be selective about what pegs you use and uh, you remove one that wobbles and you think, okay, we, we really can't, we're down maybe one or two moves before this all topples over. That's what I kind of feel like uh, the Garcia injury does. It just weakens the White Sox at enough positions to where, you know, like say if Nomar Mazzara never gets hot or Tim Anderson gets hurt again or Nick Madrigal's shoulder hampers him the rest of the season or Moncada's off and on, you know, like Garcia was the answer to all of those positions and now he's gone. So now aside from maybe second base where Danny Mendick is decent, uh, all of those positions basically lose their primary backup plan. So with him out of the picture uh, for basically the rest of the season, maybe he can return in October. Uh, that makes me less confident about the White Sox's ability to uh, to absorb much more, like to take on uh, any more water. So you don't trust Ryan Goings if he's got to replace your Mikata for a game or two at third base? Well, for Come a game on, or Jim. two, you might get lucky. But <laughs> I'm thinking for like a week, like with the way Larry stepped in for Tim Anderson when he had his groin injury and, and Larry hit over 300 and he played good defense. You know, it was it was perfectly adequate uh, production. You wouldn't count on him being that guy for, you know, maybe a whole month. But for a week, you can see it happening. With like Goins, he can't see it happening for a week. Maybe a game. Maybe he has the Ryan Goins game and gets lucky. Everybody's happy. But yeah, just uh, for for anything more than like a series, it gets really rickety. Who is the backup shortstop now? If Tim Anderson I, were to get hurt, is it Danny Mendick? I think so, with Goins moving to second. Hmm. Well, Tim Anderson, the solution is easy. Don't get hurt. You could do it. I believe in you. Or get you know, really good at like swinging around a crutch or something like that to <laughs> knock down a ball if he's uh, you know on one leg. But yeah, it, it's it's tough. And uh, I mean, the good news is a lot of teams are in the same position where just you know injuries and you know, the White Sox are not alone in having these mini uh, depth chart crises. But uh, based on just how the White Sox usually struggle with depth, to have uh, such a crucial layer of their of what was, you know, shaping up to be pretty enviable depth, you know, with uh, a situation where Adam Engel could be played in situations that favored him and everybody liked seeing him all of a sudden. I think that was the idea. And now you're, you're at a point where, like, if Mazzara doesn't heat up, then Engel's the guy you have to play. And we know typically where that leads. So that's why I'm more worried than it was last week, even though the record's basically, you know, they're hovering around 500. Yeah, that's I, I'm in the same position as well. I didn't really think about as far as the injury aspect because I'm trying to ignore that part of the White Sox at the moment, Jim. Uh, it's something, though, we knew at the beginning of the season. Like, what is the weak point of the White Sox? It's depth, especially behind shortstop and third base. And in Pio Sox, there have been some interesting names that you, our listeners, have suggested. So we'll go a little bit more into a deep dive on what the White Sox could possibly do if they need to find outside help to get through the 2020 season, especially if they are in a, if they are in a position to make the postseason. Uh, so we'll address those in P.O. Sox later in the show. 
However, just kind of taking the temperature from the fans right now on the Twitter poll, which again, you could follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. And 59% of White Sox fans uh, are saying that they're also a little bit worried with uh, 31% that are at the okay, not worried state. And I would have to say that based on reactions on Twitter this weekend, the I'm a little bit worried might be fueled from fans' uh, how should we call it, Jim? Angst against Rick Renteria. So I have to ask this question. Is Rick Renteria as bad as fans think he is? I'm going to say no. Um, just because, you know, I'm thinking of some conversations that popped up on Twitter and such. And, you know, part of it is, you know, Renteria being saddled with the baggage from so many losing seasons where the White Sox front office wasn't trying to win uh, to where when he's finally in his first season ever with a competitive roster, uh, some of the decisions or frustrations with him from previous seasons are being carried over into this year when... I wouldn't necessarily apply them. I, I wouldn't give him a clean slate necessarily. I think there are some things you can learn from and some like say with the opener or, you know, his lack of uh, willingness to try an opener or really get experimental with, you know, different bullpen pitcher usage type situations. You know, that's the thing we can carry over into this year and, and to see him, you know, avoid an opener and go more towards the bullpen game, which he never really seems to be confident in. seems like he more or less treats those games as ones he doesn't count on winning and sees if he can get lucky, which I don't necessarily care for. Uh, so that's, I think, where I'd say, like, I'd give him a strike against. But other stuff like motivation, play discipline, um, you know, just the cohesiveness of the roster, these things have been problems for the late Ozzie Guillen era and, and a lot of the Robin Ventura era, now into, you know, Renteria's era. It just seems like uh, he's getting he kind of gets sandwiched on both sides. He gets blamed for uh, some of the on-field failures, like Lucas Giolito having a terrible first inning. He also gets blamed for some of the talent acquisition issues that are above him, but Rick Hahn typically sidesteps the brunt of that criticism. So he seems to get on both sides to where you know, the, the players are, the he gets are flawed and, uh, uh, when those flawed players or even players who aren't necessarily flawed, I don't call Giolito flawed. He just, you know, he's mortal. But when they fail, he tends to get that too, because nobody seems to like blaming the player all that much. You know, it's a weird thing. Like where Giolito has a good game. Nobody says, wow, Rick Renteria prepared him well. <laughs> you know, he just, it's, it's Giolito <laughs> just had a great game. But yeah. when Giolito comes out of the first inning, you know, they start pointing fingers, wondering about preparation and wondering, you know, what's what are they doing pregame and what are they talking about? He hits two batters in a row. It's like, I don't know if Renteria is, does Renteria have to say don't hit two batters in a row? You know, it, it's that kind of situation <laughs> where nice. it just feels like, uh, you know, you, you, if you think it through a bit more and just think about what a manager gets praised for versus what he gets criticized for, it, it doesn't quite check out to me. I, I don't think he's the greatest manager in the world, but right now I don't see unique uh flaws or or hindrances aside from say pitcher deployment and, and like you know having it creative with you know making a starter where there isn't one well I, I don't know if a rah-rah manager works in today's baseball i mean yes the white Sox were completely flat on saturday if you didn't know the st louis cardinals had 17 days off i don't think you would be able to tell based on how they performed on saturday they look like the team that has been playing 19 games before 
that doubleheader. And it was the White Sox who were off for 17 days. I think that's on the players. The players have to get themselves ready. The players have to be mentally ready to go. And this is in college sports where, yes, in college sports, we see a lot of the rah-rah coaches to hype up as far as their players. But these guys are professionals. And you have a lot of veterans in that clubhouse. I think it's up to them to get ready. And Lucas Giolito had his worst inning of the season. I mean, he was just flat out bad in that first inning against the St. Louis Cardinals. He dug them into a hole. He admitted afterwards in the game that he was able to bounce back, which he did. But it was too deep of a hole and the White Sox lost as far as the first game. There's also a lot of angst against Renteria in game two of the doubleheader when the White Sox were ahead three to one. So Luis Robert had the monster home run and then Aloy Jimenez uh, had a home run himself to give the White Sox a three to one lead going into the fifth inning. And this is where there's a lot of White Sox fans that are upset with Rick Renteria on how he managed this inning. So to play it back as far as the situation on what happened Jimmy Cordero's pitching. Short fly ball into right field. Danny Mendix going after it, but he's way too deep as a second baseman. Nomar Mazzara doesn't call for it, and it falls on the ground for a single. Nomar Mazzara probably should have made that play. And at that point, you have fans, Jim, coming out and saying that Adam Engel should be in the game, or how come Adam Engel didn't get the start in game two? Well, Adam Engel didn't get the start in game two because he was a right-handed starting pitcher. And I don't know how many times we have to go through this. Adam Engel should not be starting games when there's a right-handed starting pitcher on the mound. This is why the White Sox traded for Nomar Mazzara to hit and to make these types of plays in right field, and he didn't execute. That's on Nomar Mazzara. I don't think that's on Rick Renteria. Would you agree, Jim, or would you disagree with that thought process? It seems too early to start giving up on Mazzara, and I'm not saying that, you know... um... Like right now, I think if I had to win a game, I would play Angle over Mazzara. Mazzara just at the plate, his timing is off. He's not really lifting the ball, pulling the ball, not tapping into that 500 foot power we saw when he uh, when he when he took Lopez deep. Uh, and the defense is subpar. He's running slower than I thought. Although he made a couple plays to where okay, there's the some of the speed or or at least you know average foot speed that I thought he had with Texas uh, that, that showed up on Sunday. So maybe it was just some kind of weird read that he wasn't convinced on. And so he just seemed a lot slower than usual. But yeah, right now, I, I think Angle is the better player. Thing is, like, you know, Mazzara was brought in to, you know, play against righties, to have a, a chance at providing some above average power from that position. So you have to give him some time and, and you have to, you know, see what's there. So, you know, that's a, that's a case where I think it's more of an issue above him to where, you know, if Nomar Mazar turns out to be bad, uh, Renteria didn't pick him up. You know, he didn't, he didn't acquire him to be that guy and, and to be the, uh, to get the guy who's supposed to spare Adam Angle from right-handed pitchers and, and put him in favorable situations. I saw some ones, you know, some situations where, or criticisms where they said the situation was such that Mazara should have been subbed out defensively. And that seems kind of... I didn't see too many people clamoring for that before the ball dropped. Uh, right. You know, it's, it's just, it seems like a little bit of second guessing there. Um, it seems like if Mazzara is this rough for maybe another 10 games, you know, maybe to get to the halfway point, Mazzara is still hitting under 200 and he's lucky. You know, he, he's got the weird reverse splits because he's not really 
getting around on pitches, then maybe you think about, you know, giving more starts to angle. But right now I think it's still trying to establish just exactly what Mazzara has to offer, if anything. Okay. So it's, I, again, I do not think this is something to be mad about with Renteria for not subbing out Nomar Mazzara or having the foresight of subbing out Nomar Mazzara in the fifth inning of a game for a defensive substitution for Adam Engel. Nomar Mazzara did not execute. That's Mazzara's fault. Now, the next batter is Harrison Bader, and Yohan Makata almost turns two. But Bader is incredibly quick, and after replay, it shows that Bader beat out the the turn throw from Danny Mendek to first base, just barely. So there's one out runner on first. Cordero hits a batter. Now you got runners on first and second with one out. There's a mound visit. And then Cordero spikes a pitch that James McCant can't handle. And the runners move up to second and third with one out. Matt Carpenter grounds out to drive in a run. So now you have two outs with a runner on third. If McCann handled that spike pitch and the runners didn't advance, by the way, that might have been a double play ball by Matt Carpenter and the White Sox would have been out of the inning. But continuing on, now you have two outs with a runner on third and Renteria replaces uh, Cordero with Evan Marshall to face Paul Goldschmidt. Now, I, I have to admit, Jim, I thought they would pitch around Goldschmidt. But Marshall is pretty aggressive, stealing two strikes with breaking pitches against Goldschmidt. And on a 1-2 pitch, McCann calls for a high fastball out of the zone, but Marshall doesn't throw it high enough. And Goldschmidt singles as Danny Mendick couldn't corral the hard-hit grounder, and the game was tied 3-3. Two pitches later, Tyler O'Neill homers, and chaos ensues. And the Cardinals go on, and they win the game. Now, there are White Sox fans that want to debate that that was a terrible call on Renteria to not walk Paul Goldschmidt in that situation with a runner on third and two outs in first base open. Do you agree with that sentiment, Jim, that the White Sox should have intentionally walked Paul Goldschmidt? I I think the thinking is you don't want to let Goldschmidt beat you. So I I get that. Uh, And that seems to be not a, I wouldn't call it an ironclad decision like that. It was dumb to let Goldschmidt beat you. I think it was just a risk reward thing. Uh, And I think Renteria assessed it as being like, well, I'm not going to let Cordero face Goldschmidt. I think that was his thinking was that if he was going to stick with Cordero, he would have pitched around Goldschmidt said he brought in his best right-handed reliever. You know, maybe column a is uh, best right-handed reliever ultimately, but you know, maybe he's not going to be somebody who comes in with the bases crowded you know, earlier than he's uh, anticipating. So I think Marshall is probably the best right-handed reliever option there. And he says, I'm going to go with, you know, my best guy against their best guy. So it didn't strike me as bad managing. It struck me as like a move that didn't work and a move that opens himself up to criticism, but not a, you know, I guess I wouldn't call that binary, like good move, bad move. Just like it didn't work out. Like, you know, there was some thinking there. There was some logic there and Marshall made pretty good pitches. The pitch that he didn't get high enough was high. Like it was just on the, the very upper reaches of the zone. Maybe like, you know, it might've been borderline if the pitch actually got to the mitt and, Goldschmidt didn't get out of the infield. The home run he gave up was on a sinker uh, down and in off the plate, somehow golfed out. Like it was just, uh, Marshall got beat. And then that's, I think, the thing I come back to. And I asked this question on Twitter, wondering, like, has it always been at the manager level, the way these games are discussed and not, you know, because I remember being very acute 
when Ned Yost was in the postseason and every postseason preview and, and every like, you know, narrative on the analytical sites, you know, like, you know, that would say like fan graphs, uh, baseball prospectus, the ringer, et cetera, you know, we're all about Ned Yost and how he's overmatched and how, you know, he's not calling, you know, he's too rigid with his relief roles and he has the wrong guy batting second and, and just all, all these, uh, you know, decisions he does, he, he, that aren't optimal that he's making and, uh, should hold him back and he gets the world series one year and wins the world series the next year and it never quite catches up to him but i just remember every postseason being about ned yost and i just kind of got tired of hearing everything through that framework and, and so i think maybe I'm, I'm not sure if that's a recent thing to where just kind of like the ootpization of uh of baseball where it's just like how you know fans interact with the game now maybe you know more than they have before or Maybe just because the White Sox haven't been competitive in a while, I just haven't heard it through the White Sox prism. But in this case, like I can see Renteria's thought process, um, and and I thought either would have been defensible. I would, I, I think you know if Cordero faced Goldschmidt, that wouldn't have been defensible given the way he was throwing. Just uh, I, I think Cordero's stuff has been a little bit diminished this year, and so I wouldn't take him against their best guy. But for Marshall, who's been thrown well and who threw well that start to terrible results or or, or that relief appearance through terrible results, uh, that one I didn't see on Renteria. I just thought that is like one ball player beating another. Okay, good. Because that's how I feel as well. And it is con- it's going to be every game now, Jim. It is going to be every single game on Twitter. The White Sox lose. It is going to be Rick Renteria's fault. And guys, if you have been listening to us through the Robin Ventura era or since the Robin Ventura era, there were games that, yeah, Robin Ventura was losing for the White Sox. You know, go, if you want to see a manager poorly handle situations, go to the Memorial Day weekend of 2016 in White Sox history and you will see a manager doing a bad job costing his team games. On Saturday, the players themselves were flat. I don't think there's much that Rick Renteria can do to spark enthusiasm for his team. And in game two, they just couldn't execute in the fifth inning. And they got beat, as you mentioned, Jim. That's a player's issue. And if you're upset that the White Sox are a 500 team and they're 11-11, I don't think it's a Rick Renteria problem. I think it's a player issue. The veterans haven't been playing well. Yasmani Grandel finally hit his first home run, Jim, in a White Sox uniform on Sunday. Edwin Encarnacion is making it a really easy decision for that player option to not be picked up after this season. We just talked about Nomar Mazzara, and man, he is he's raising even more questions about right field for the 2021 season. Like the White Sox were counting on these veterans to step up with their production or add to the holes that the White Sox had with their roster. They aren't. Jose Braves not having the best start to this season. Yoan Makata, I don't know if he's just fighting through nagging injuries, but he's not hitting like he was last year. Aloy Jimenez has just decided I'm not going to walk ever. I mean, he's hitting home runs. We'll get to that in a moment, which he has good at bats. And then more times than not, he is struggling. I mean, his on-base percentage is well below 300. Luis Robert is still learning how to hit the league. And you lost Tim Anderson for a week. Like, 
injuries have played a factor, but a lot of these guys offensively have been playing every single day and they're not executing. And I don't see how that's Rick Renteria's fault. And if this sounds like I'm defending Rick Renteria, I am. If your thought process is, well, the White Sox need to fire Rick Renteria because he's costing him games. No, well, he's not costing him games. I think this is on the players not executing. Well, also, I just think it's all, you know, there are, there are bigger structural issues than Renteria. Like I'm, I'm, you mentioned Jose Abreu and, you know, he just got a three-year, $50 million contract. And he's going to bat in the middle of the order. Like that's not a, you know, Renteria in the first year of an Abreu three-year extension, like he can't be the GM and say like, I don't, uh, <laughs> just because he sold me this contract doesn't mean I have to play him against right-handed pitching. Uh, that's probably not how it's going to work. You know, you can't bring in a new manager and do, th- I mean, first you can't bring in a new manager this year anyway. I just think because of COVID and everything, just every team's got their protocols uh, and, and the people in charge of seeing them through. So I think there's going to be very little movement on the coach level aside from coaches opting out. Uh, so there's that concern, but also just the White Sox have a whole bunch of things like Don Cooper being around an intractable Jose Abreu getting a three-year deal and maybe no other team would have offered him, you know, maybe some, a couple other teams would have offered him too. But, you know, just that there are some, they have a w- really tangled power structure. And I think it, you know, there, there's a manager that, uh, uh, you know, the, the, I guess, amount of managers they'd actually hire is very limited to begin with. And we saw that, you know, what uh, Robin Ventura was one of them. So yeah, it's, it's tricky. And then, you know, people float Ozzy as an idea and Ozzy would be a terrible idea for any team in the future <laughs> so just it's a very limited palette uh, uh that the white Sox are working with when it comes to summoning a manager and i think renteria is kind of doing a pretty good job of navigating that you know the best he can but you know it isn't only you know white Sox fans because i don't know if you saw this tweet from steve stone it was a reply to uh an, a fan it wasn't like on his main feed so okay. i only saw because it, it got retweeted in my feed but uh a fan uh at jeff joe 49 uh, tweeted to Steve Stone. He said, I'm pretty sure you won't want to answer this, but here goes anyway. Do you think Renteria is the right guy for this team? In my humble opinion, I see too many missed scoring opportunities. I don't always agree with his lineups yesterday. No McCann catching Giolito. Great success with that pair. And Steve Stone responded, I'll choose not to answer that, which is an answer, which in itself is an hmm. answer. So is that a, <laughs> so, this is my vote of no confidence, or I think your question is so ridiculous, I'm not going to even answer it. It's a good question. Given his previous, uh, the way his uh, tenure ended with the Cubs for being too honest, it can be read either way. Right. It can be read as him being like, I'm, you know, I've learned that discretion is important, but also I, I have to let something out. Or just that, uh, yeah, like you said, just maybe it's too soon to, but it, it struck me as like a, a respectfully phrased enough question where Stone wouldn't, you know, snark it down reflexively. Like, yeah, there, there were some valid points made or at least a valid perspective presented to him. So it struck me more along the lines of like, not minding being interpreted that way, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. he's not, he's not, he doesn't have the utmost confidence. We'll say that. The Nikito Monaco stuff at the beginning of the season was dumb. Yeah. Like, just dumb. If you want us to say something bad about Rick Renteria, I agree with you. The Nikito Monaco saga was dumb. He was trying, the logic was trying to break up the right-handers, and Nikito Monaco bats left-handed. So, here we go. I have a templated lineup. I'm going to bat Nikito Monaco second, or clean up. Yeah, I'm with you. It's dumb. 
But in the last two weeks, I think the reason why the White Sox are a 500 team is not because of Rick Renteria's decision-making or lineup construction. I you can, you can construct the lineup however you want. They're not hitting consistently. So I don't know what lineup you're going to build that suddenly solves that consistency issue for the White Sox, where on Saturday and in 14 innings, they only have six total hits in two games. And then on Sunday, they hit four straight home runs. Like, we have seen what this offense could be, but we have seen this offense in 12 of their 22 games struggle to score three runs. In 12 of the 22 games this season, the White Sox have scored three runs or fewer. And it's a boomer bust offense right now. And I don't know how any manager or hitting coach can fix that, especially when you have veterans like the White Sox do in their lineup that are just simply not hitting. Yeah, it's it's also, you know, the whole pandemic season. You have a, a start, stop, start preseason, and some teams are handling it better than others. I think the White Sox, you know, reflected in the record or middle in the pack in both, you know, in terms of talent available, talent handling it well. Uh, you know, the, the inconsistency certainly is there. I mean, they slipped ahead of Detroit. So right now the standings are pretty much normal. <laughs> like there's, they're kind of where they're supposed to be. They were 10 and nine entering the weekend, which is an 85 win pace. They were projected for 84 wins. Like they're kind of where they're supposed to be. And I think the way the offense is built with, you know, not a whole lot of guys, you know, w- w- with some instant power in a lot of places, but also, not guys who can, you know, consistently make pitchers work. So there can be very easy afternoons for pitching staffs. I think that's being reflected by and large in the results so far. And it's tricky to, you know, like you mentioned the Delmonico thing, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I mentioned the bullpen thing, the Ross Detweiler, I guess it kind of folds into the opener thing where Detweiler kind of being saved for late or high leverage use and then never being used in high leverage situations. That's bizarre. Like uh, Zach Collins, really, there's not a role for him. We'll talk about that later, but just, you know, there are some gaps where I don't really understand his thinking, but also, you know, like, as you mentioned, you know, Encarnacion, Grandal, Mazar, these are guys who were brought into, uh, you know, stabilized positions. And so he's got to give them playing time to at least show what they have. Like if Mazara, if, you know, Mazara has a bad week, Renteria benches him for Angle, then Angle looks like Angle has always looked, especially against right-hand pitcher. And you have like an Angle who shouldn't be starting in a corner and you have Mazara who's never had the playing time to actually get into game shape. Uh, then that situation's really a mess. So like, yeah, I guess I look at it as far as like trying to, think through it and, and see why there might be a case and, and see like, what's the alternative, like in Delmonico, like, well, you know, there's no plus for playing Delmonico. So yeah, that's a strike against, there's no, you know, why, why, you know, Corden Ross Detweiler off in the rotation, but that not use them in situations where it can make a difference in the bullpen. That doesn't make sense. But you know, when it comes to Encarnacion struggling or Mazar struggling, like, he's got to play these guys. So, I mean, that's, I point upwards to that and in the whole, uh, you know, scouting department and, and pro scouting and also the pandemic, just the, the fact that this is not a normal season is going to lead to not normal starts. And we're seeing that too. I think the Detweiler thing, Jim, maybe my theory, there's scar tissue from last year and Renteria is like me waiting for 2019 Ross Detweiler to emerge. Fingers crossed that never happens. But I wonder if there's just some scar tissue there on 
being a bit hesitant to overuse Detweiler, not knowing if this success will continue. But the way that he's throwing, maybe that will change uh, as far as Renteria's mind. I know the way that Matt Foster has been throwing now that he's been used in back-to-back days. Uh, that was to on how well he's been throwing, and Renteria mentioned that after Sunday, that that's why I had him pitch again for an inning because I think I want to give him higher leverage situations moving forward because he's been throwing really well for the White Sox and Foster definitely has. So, yeah, I think, well, I think with Detweiler, when Aaron Bummer went down, he's like, well, I need a strike throwing lefty late later in games. Jace Fry isn't that guy. I'm not going to trust him with that. So Detweiler is him. And then when it came around to those situations, he got cold feet. <laughs> Maybe didn't want to trust Detweiler with a whole seventh or eighth inning or three batters for a seventh and eighth inning. So he went with Evan Marshall instead to mixed results. Uh, so that's kind of my thinking is just that he had an idea. And then when it came to actually applying that idea, just couldn't bring himself to do it. But then that cost him, you know, Detweiler as a second pitcher, you know, throwing, you know, going through a lineup one time after Matt Foster, mm-hmm. that probably would have been a nice way to use him. But, you know, instead just with this being caught in between, he ends up using Detweiler like down six or up six with an inning left. And that's not really an optimal way to use a guy who's been thrown pretty well. And, you know, if this is, I'll, I'll keep, uh, you know, bringing this up, but if this is year of the quadruple A player, maybe Tetweiler is that quadruple A player in this situation where just being prepared and being readier than he was last year pays dividends. I just don't, uh, looking at the past 22 games, I just, I can't specify any game that Rick Renteria has lost for the White Sox in, two, in 2020. Yeah, I think maybe the bullpen game on Saturday was the one two Saturdays ago, I think was the one where just the Drew Anderson. Yeah. They scored one run, Jim. Yeah. I mean, 14 guys on base, but I, I, but I think that was like one where just the, you know, if they lose that one, three to one, that's one thing, Yeah, but just, uh, you know, just Anderson, the the thought process wasn't there. Like Anderson is not a major league pitcher. He's an NRI. It just kind of brought in, you know, you bring him in for one inning against the bottom lineup. Cool. But then like afterwards, it seems like this is pushing your luck. And then it works out like it did. And so just like the thought, that's a case where the thought process didn't seem like, it seemed like more like he was just hoping to get lucky with, with Drew Anderson. Maybe that is a strategy for getting through a game, depending on who's available mm-hmm. and, and who's, uh, you know, maybe some conversations we're not privy to, but just based on the thought process, asking for more than one inning out of Drew Anderson based on what we know of him and what, you know, Schaumburg is not a, a place I think where, uh, boys are going to become men. <laughs> I think that's a case where it's, uh, yeah, I just, I couldn't follow the thought process there. Okay. Well, when it comes to Drew Anderson, my it, thought process is why was he called up? That's not a Rick Renteria situation, but I guess I understand where you're coming yeah. from. That I mean, like ultimately it didn't cost him the game, but it, it hurt their position to possibly win that game, which I think you know, is probably a more fair way to say it. Okay. But again, if the offense is only going to score one run in a bullpen game, I don't like your odds of winning that game. Yeah, a butterfly effect. Sure, sure. I, well, again, the butterfly effect could have maybe worked out for Paul Goldschmidt. Maybe they walk him and Tyler O'Neill doesn't hit a home run. Yep. And uh, they end up winning that game 3-2 to two, uh, on Saturday. But I don't, I, I don't think Rick Renteria is doing a bad job. If you are frustrated, again, with the White Sox being 500, this is on the players. And it's on the veterans that they have brought in, and they have to step up their game. Now, before we start previewing the Detroit Tigers series, a couple other notes. Uh, the four home runs in a row, which is awesome. 
The last time the White Sox did this was in 2008. And some interesting quotes coming after the game. Yasmani Grandel, speaking to reporters, has said that his progress this season is terrible. And it's due to him not being able to watch video during the game and having to base his in-game adjustments by feel. And this is interesting to me, Jim, because J.D. Martinez has made a similar comment about his struggles this season. So I guess this is one of the effects of the Houston Astros and Boston Red Sox cheating scandals and the fact that video has been banned. Now it's impacting veteran hitters like Yasmani Grandel making in-game adjustments and probably why he's struggling to start the season. Yeah, there. You know, he's one. Um, Martinez is one guy who said that uh, Luke Voigt and, and the Yankees, another guy who's really his his walk to strikeout ratio is really out of whack uh, compared to what he had done with the Yankees previously. So he's another one who's pointed out the video disparity. So it's it's a real concern uh, or a real obstacle for some hitters. Um, I, I think it is incumbent on Grandall to figure it out. You know, he's a highly competent professional, so I wouldn't say. I'm, I get it. I would say that, but I would say it's also like, it doesn't behoove him or, 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 um, you know, it, it's not, he doesn't want to spend too much time talking about that publicly. I don't think, I don't think there's a way for him to garner favor or sympathy, uh, because of it. It, it just can, because I think with the White Sox, they have such a scar tissue of, uh, veteran free agents performing terribly that, uh, you know, he, you know, that's not necessarily his fault, but it is something that he's going to have to contend with. So, um, yeah, it seems like it's, it's partially an Astros Red Sox thing, partially a concern with maybe trying to limit personnel for, uh, COVID concerns, you know, and I, th- I think if they're going to have the video rooms open and used during the games, they'd have to have more monitors, uh, in place. <laughs> and maybe that's just another level of employee they don't want around ballplayers right now in order to keep the season as uh, limit the personnel as much as they can. I wonder if they could have video, though, of their at bats where they can pull up a tablet and watch their at bat while they're waiting for the next time they go up to the plate, like in yeah, between I thought, innings. I thought I saw Jose Abreu with one. But I wonder if that's just preloaded video of past. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's possible it just passed, but you know, it seems like there's a way to make video work, but it's just going to require, I think, league monitors. Like I think the Astros prove that you know, I, I you know, it's unfortunate that the Astros and and Red Sox and and uh, you know they they've ruined it for other teams. But on the other hand, like if they allowed the video room to ha- you know be you know, wide open again, and the same scandal happened, it would be really embarrassing for the league to suffer that. So I don't think you can, I think the, the, the previous scandals have shown that, yeah, you, you can't leave them unmonitored. And so now it's just a matter of, you know, having personnel in place to keep watch over that and maintain the integrity of those rooms. I think there's a, there's a middle ground to be found, but maybe right now this season isn't the time to add personnel. True. I'd be interested to see if they do add some type of video capabilities in the in the dugout during games i i don't know i don't know how i feel about it but it was interesting that yasmani grandal has pointed it out and you have other veterans as well that are mentioning that they have lost this tool that they had in game and now they're going to have to make adjustments and these players are struggling to start the season and that could be a reason why so something to pay attention to for yasmani grandal Uh, aloy jimenez now with seven home runs in the last five games he has homered four times 
in that stretch. Uh, Jimenez is now two behind Aaron Judge, Mike Trout, and Fernando Tatis Jr. for the league lead. So for those that put money on Aloy Jimenez, like I did, <laughs> to lead the league in home runs, we're still in uh, shooting range uh, as far as for that to happen. Uh, Jose Abreu and Yohan Mercado, part of this back-to-back-to-back-to-back home run spree, they both now have four home runs in the season. And Jim, again, Yohan Mikata, it doesn't appear that he looks 100%. He's now hitting 259 with a 326 on base percentage and slugging 457. This is 2018 Yohan Mikata numbers, and I feel like he could be doing better. Do we just contribute his nagging injuries to be the issue, or is there something else going on? Uh, it seems like, uh, well, well, Mikata, you know, him being the only confirmed COVID-19 case, Mazzara didn't have, Mazzara said he had strep throat. Did Jose Ruiz, did he ever... I don't think he's spoken to... Surface with the reason, or is... Yeah, yeah, he was in Chamber. So, like, I don't know if he just doesn't have a high enough profile for media to follow up. But uh, as far as I know, Moncada is the only confirmed COVID case. So, you know, he did lose preparation time, and he is somebody who, you know, is subject to hamstring injuries and various maladies. So, you know, it's a case where... You know, he might not be 100%. I think he had more life in him Sunday than he did Saturday. Like, a lot of his actions for previous week were pretty much, you know, sluggish. The bat seemed like it was, like, 40, 50 ounces, and the throws weren't crisp. And Sunday, it seemed like the the throws were coming off. He had more life in his legs. And, you know, him hammering that homer, because, you know, watching that whole sequence where, uh, was it Roel Ramirez? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, could not... Uh, locate a curveball like he had he had nothing but the fastball and the fastball is 92 to 94 just like okay this is take the glove this should be one where you know it's open season on him you know there were two outs so there's only one chance with the Moncada at the plates uh to where like you know failure or like a well hit line drive that was out wouldn't have been failure but just like this has got to be the one where we see something from him sure enough he you know cranks it all the way uh, bounces up to the top of the goose island section and that's what I was really hoping to see was just that bat head get through and and feast on a mistake. And same thing with like Eloy Jimenez uh, to, to segue to him is just like Jimenez was doing well enough for a guy who wasn't pulling the ball in the air. Like his home run chart was, you know, I sized it up on Twitter against Adam Eaton's home run chart in 2016. They look similar, just all to right field, a couple to, uh, you know, just left of center, but nothing pulled you know you know, he wasn't really driving the ball in that direction wasn't able to get the ball off the ground so on sunday he rips the ball in the you know line drive uh over the infield into the outfield for an rbi single and then he comes through with the homer uh you know out to left and so just having those two swings maybe i feel a bit better about his production being more than homers even though there should be homers to that side as well well hopefully Sunday's home run outburst continues this week as the Detroit Tigers are in town to play a four-game series. The Tigers started the season 9-5, but they have now lost five straight games. So what gives? We have Cody Stavenhagen, the Detroit Tigers beat reporter from The Athletic, join us next with the latest from Motown after a quick word from our sponsors. Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. 
With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com slash laser. Come celebrate Lowe's first annual Spring Fest with a Charbroil Performance 5-Burner Grill was $249, now $199. And Style Selection 7-Piece Pelham Bay Dining Set was $219, now $199. Create a new dining experience this Spring Fest, a festival of fun and savings for your garden and total home, in-store or online. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. Dining set offer valid through 5-5, grill offer valid to 421, while supplies last. Selection varies by location. Patio accessories sold separately, U.S. only. The Chicago White Sox last week won two out of three in Detroit. And after a hot start, the Tigers are beginning to fade a bit. They started the season 9-5, and and now the Tigers have lost five straight games after being swept by the Cleveland Indians. As a matter of fact, the Tigers have now lost 20 straight games to the Cleveland Indians. Ouch. Just like a lot of teams, there's a bit of roster uncertainty as injuries begin to pile up for Detroit. So what should we expect from the Tigers in this upcoming four-game series in Chicago? Well, joining us is the D- Detroit Tigers beat reporter for The Athletic. It's Cody Stavenhagen. And hello, Cody. Thanks for joining the show. Hey, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, Cody, Tigers fans, they really had to enjoy the start of 2020. Really shocking the American League, winning nine out of their first 14 games. But they haven't won since last Monday against the White Sox. What's the state of the Tigers as they roll into Chicago? Yeah, I think it's pretty concerning. I think the team we saw the past five games uh, looked a lot more like the 2019 Tigers, which, of course, lost 114, and it's it's kind of worth remembering that last year's Tigers started, I think, seven and three or, or eight and four. Uh, this year's team obviously started playing pretty good baseball as well, but uh, the wheels have really kind of come off, and it's not just a couple of bad performances. I think it's kind of the implications of these bad performances. They've only had um, a starting pitcher reach the sixth or, or complete the sixth inning of a game twice this season. It was Spencer Turnbull both times. Uh, so the starting rotation has really struggled, has the worst ERA in baseball. That's really taxed the bullpen. Um, you know, the back end of this bullpen with Gregory Soto, Joe Jimenez has, has pitched pretty well, but they haven't even been able to get to those guys much recently. You're kind of looking at some more journeyman relievers or young guys who might not even be on the roster in a regular year who are having to eat up a lot of innings. Um, I, so I think the bullpen's coming in pretty gassed. And then obviously – Tigers had Von Nova go on the IL, um, and then they moved Tyler Alexander to piggyback with Michael Fulmer against Cleveland on Sunday. So the Tigers enter this series basically with two openings in the starting rotation. Um, there's not much clarity on what they're going to do. I think the, a large percentage of the fan base hopes that top prospect Casey Mize will make his debut, and that's a possibility, but also um, not necessarily a certainty given kind of the, the cautious, almost cautious approach the front office seems to be taking so far. Um, so we could have fanfare if Mize makes his debut, or we could see a Dario Agrizal or Anthony Castro starting in one of these spots. I, I would guess Daniel Norris will occupy one of the other ones. But again, there's just a lot of uncertainty, kind of a lot of roster shuffling. Uh, Nico Goodrum, the starting shortstop, also... Uh, had some sort of back injury someday. We don't know any more details on that. So it seems like this roster is really in flux. Tigers lost C.J. Crone, their first baseman. He's having season-ending knee surgery. Uh, so just a lot of moving parts, and honestly, none of them are very good for the Tigers. It kind of seems like the thing that could 
could create a pretty big collapse um, if, if something doesn't change pretty soon. So back to the prospects, because I did want to touch on that. The Tigers are rebuilding, and I can understand if they don't want to start the service clock on some prospects. But in this 2020 season, you don't have a minor league season, and I don't know how much player development is actually happening at these taxi squad locations. So without a minor league season, do you think it makes sense, Cody, to see Casey Mize or even Matt Manning this season for the Tigers? Yeah, I think if the Tigers view either of those guys, even Tarek Skubal, as ready, um, I think they're about out of reasons to not put them in the major leagues. I think the Tigers were uh, right, you know, fair or not right to play the service time game, uh, but these guys are no longer going to accrue a full year of service time. Um, I'm not sure Super 2 status is as big of a deal, but we're, we're probably creeping up on that deadline too. Um, I don't think you can say they're not stretched out because Casey Bynes was scheduled to throw five innings at the alternate training site on Friday. He only went two because of rain, but he's clear. If he can throw five innings there, why can't he throw five innings in a major league game? You know, I, I think we've about ran through all the arguments, all the reasons to delay. The fact of the matter is, is that the Tigers really need starting pitching right now. They have some pretty talented starting pitchers available uh, Mize for sure in, in spring training and in summer workouts looked he looks the part he looked really good this guy has a, a well-versed well-rounded arsenal he's a mature kid he's um he's, he's poised and composed he looked like he would be the Tigers maybe second best pitcher from what we saw um you know in in summer workouts Matt Manning I think is a little bit of a different case because he, this is a guy who was drafted straight out of high school, hasn't been pitching as long. He might have a higher ceiling ultimately than Casey Mize, but he's more of just a fastball curveball pitcher with a decent changeup. Uh, in summer workouts, he, he struggled to command his curveball, which has been a dynamite pitch for him in the minor league. But we kind of got a glimpse of a AAA kind of, this is why AAA exists. I, and Matt Manning, I saw a pitcher who is going to be really good one day, but probably needs some time in AAA to face really good hitters to make sure he has consistent command of these pitches. Personally, I think he could benefit from developing a slider, maybe more of a cutter too, and, and that's something he toyed with a little bit in spring. Um, it didn't stick, but it shows I think he has a little more development to go in his game than Casey Mize, right? So if you want to not bring up Matt Manning this year or wait until the end of the year, I think that's defensible because I don't think you want to start a clock or throw a guy in the big leagues if he's just not ready. The most compelling case for Casey Mize is that there's there's overwhelming evidence that he is ready, that he can handle this. Um, so especially now that you have two rotation spots that need filling, I, I, I think it's about time to bring up Casey Mize. You mentioned C.J. Crow now out for the season, and he's one of these hitters that had a hot start to the, to the 2020 season and now out for the season. Who is expected to replace Crone at first base, and who will get more at-bats in his lineup spot? Yeah, uh, another instance of there just being a lot of moving parts, and I don't guess confusion is the right word, but like the Tigers are really sticking to this very patient, arguably even over-patient philosophy in the rebuild, right? So rather than recall the first baseman, such as Frank Schwindel, who, who has a lot of power, probably not to be the greatest major league player uh but could have been an easy way to kind of fill crone's gap 
rather than do that, they recalled Willie Castro, who's a shortstop, who they now have playing third base the past four games. Uh, they've shifted third baseman Jamer Candelario, who's their best defensive infielder, over to first. And it seems like that's the plan uh, now with Corona out for the season. Candelario is going to stick at first most of the time. Um, you know, they, they could mix and match a little bit, but it's pretty much Candelario's job over there at first, which is interesting. It allows you to get a guy like Willie Castro um, in the lineup or put a Harold Castro, some other utility guys in. So it's a way to kind of create that spot. But at the same time, I think it ultimately hurts their infield defense a little bit. And then in the batting order, I mean, maybe even a bigger gap, the Tigers really needed Crone's power. He was a veteran hitter. He, you know, I think he had four home runs. He actually wasn't destroying it at the plate. He had been slumping um, at, at the time of his injury. But you could kind of feel how his presence made this team a lot better than some of the awful lineups we saw last year. Suddenly the Tigers don't really have that cleanup hitter. We've seen Jonathan Scope in that in that spot. Scope's been struggling at the plate, too. He was hitting in the number two spot. Um, Personally, I don't think he gets on base enough to be the two hitter, so maybe this is better. But the Tigers just don't super seem to have uh, a legitimate candidate to either fill that two spot or if you leave scope two to fill that cleanup spot. So could we see Jacoby Jones eventually move up in the order? I don't know. So far, the Tigers have kind of mixed and matched. We've seen Victor Reyes, we've seen um, Harold Castro hit number two, we've seen Kristen Stewart against right-handed pitching, maybe hitting the cleanup spot a little bit, but really any way you cut it, it's it's not an ideal kind of top year order, especially if Miguel Cabrera, uh, he had two hits today on, on Sunday, but he's been struggling a little bit, so especially if he's not producing at the three spot there, you, you know, it almost doesn't matter what your order is, it's, it's you're not in great shape, and it kind of shows you how fragile some of this was for the Tigers. Things were pretty encouraging. The lineup when you had, you know, Goodrum, Scope, Cabrera, Crone, wasn't bad, had some power. You just lose one of those guys and kind of the whole thing, it, it, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like it's starting to unravel a little bit. You mentioned Jacoby Jones, and he's having a terrific start to 2020. You know, every time I just look up to see, you know, every couple of games that he plays, I'm just astonished by a slash line, 315 batting average on base 383. He's slugging 722. He's got seven doubles and five home runs. But when I look at the lineup, Cody, Jones is batting, you know, sometimes hitting ninth. Is Ron Garnheyer with all these injuries now, is he going to consider moving Jones up in the order to give him more plate appearances? Yeah, they asked that uh, the day after Crone's injury. I, I kind of understood why Garden Hire had been patient. Jones throughout his career has been an extremely streaky hitter. He spent some time in the leadoff role last year and probably doesn't get on base or walk consistently enough for that, although some of the numbers there are really beginning to turn. He has been walking more since, since last summer. Um, his chase rate continues to decline. So he's showing more signs, especially on this team, of a guy who could be somewhere in the top of the order. Um, I, I think Gardner just doesn't want to mess with him. He wants Jones to stay confident, stay composed. There's probably a little fear of, well, will he cool off as soon as you bump him to that one or that two or that four spot? Uh, because I do think it's entirely possible, but I think it, it's interesting. Jones has kind of tapered off a little bit, but you just read his slash line. He's still playing really well. 
I was worried Jacoby wasn't going to be able to handle more off-speed pitches. He doesn't have a great track record. He was getting a lot of fastballs or, or just kind of hanging breaking balls, and he was crushing them all. He was not missing mistakes. Um, and we, we have seen pitchers throw a more heavy diet of off-speed pitches and breaking pitches to Jacoby Jones in probably the past week or so. And he hasn't uh, he hasn't totally been crushing him, but he's handled it a little bit better than I thought too. So I, again, I think with the Crone injury, you know, I get not wanting to mess with Jacoby Jones. He's having success, but I think with the Crone injury, it's about time to just give it a whirl, give it a shot. You know, uh, the, the Tigers need some help at the top of the order. So far, Jacoby Jones has been their best hitter. So why not do something to get him more at bats? Um, we'll see if Ron Gardenhire finally feels pushed or compelled to experiment with that. Uh, but again, so far, we, we haven't really seen indication that that's going to happen. Last Wednesday, it was Matthew Boyd who coughed up the lead, giving up the three-run double to Luis Robert. After the game, he promised the Tiger fans he will be better. And Cody, Boyd in the first half of 2019 was a dark horse Cy Young candidate. He was one of the best pitchers in the American League. But since the second half and the start of 2020, his performance has really fallen off. What's been the issue for Matthew Boyd, who at one time for us in Chicago thought, wow, the Tigers could trade him and get some really interesting prospects back. But now it just seems like that's not going to be the case. Yeah, it's been a little bit puzzling. I think Boyd, obviously, he struggled from really after his, uh, you know, his first 12 starts of last season were really good. And then he struggled from there on out. So it wasn't even just the second half. It kind of predated that even. But he still had some really good outings. He racked up some high strikeout totals. His whiff rate was good. His K per nine was, uh, was I think, sixth in baseball. Um, you know, his, his FIP, I believe, was lower than his ER race. There were a lot of encouraging signs. I was really high on Matthew Boyd entering this year. I thought he was maybe going to put it all together, develop a little more consistency, have a little better defense behind him. Uh, I thought he was in for a really big year, especially given, hey, it's 60 games. All he needed was those 12 good starts. And, and wow, what, what a year he could finish with. Instead, it's been the total opposite. He's just really struggled. I think last year he he became a little bit too predictable with just being a fastball slider guy. People were able to sit on fastball a lot, and they crushed him. He he I think he led baseball and home runs allowed. But this year the problems have been more wide ranging. His slider just doesn't seem like it's had quite the same bite. Um, he's still getting a decent amount of whiffs, but it just you know the shape. If you look at the numbers, it's not drastically different, but it just doesn't seem the same. I don't think he's commanding it as well. I don't think he has as much confidence in it. He worked to this offseason on the curveball, and he's experimented with that some, but he's, he's definitely not commanding that well, and he, he really hasn't used it super often. And then his fastball command, I think, has also been worse. So he's been behind in counts more often, which limits how he can use his slider, which prevents that slider from being an out pitch. Um, he, he's mentioned kind of some minor mechanical adjustments. He talked after his last outing that he kind of started chasing some, some metrics just on the rap soda machine, looking at vertical break and it's fastball, I guess getting it to ride through the zone a little more, maybe became almost over obsessed with that where it, it messed with his mechanics. He started getting on the side of the ball. Sometimes seems like he had a lot of small things kind of break down all around the same time. And he's still been working through that 
four starts into the year, um, kind of each time it's like, okay, is this going to be the day Matthew gets it together, has his good outing? It still feels in a way like he's due for that. I don't think this is a guy who's, who's going to carry a 10 ERA. Uh, but at the same time, with the level of struggles, you know, it does make you wonder, did the Tigers miss out on their, their opportunity to trade him? Will his stock ever be as high again? It's been pretty concerning. I think it's fixable, but it's also it's also not just one issue with Matthew Boyd right now. So I think that's the the most worrisome thing. And then finally, Michael Fulmer. Not sure if we're going to see him in this series against the White Sox, but he's also one of those Tigers starters that had a really good start, and there was a lot of conversations about him being traded to return some really interesting prospects for the Tigers. But injuries have been... Uh, obviously got in the way for Michael Fulmer. Where is he as far as trying to get back to where he was um, before his downfall? Yeah, so Fulmer pitched Sunday into the Indians in an opener role. I, I wouldn't expect at all to see him in this series. But his comeback remains pretty interesting just to to chronicle. I mean, obviously this is a guy who was the American League Rookie of the Year only a few only a few seasons ago. Um, in 2017, was a was you know a big trade target. Um, Tigers didn't end up pulling the trigger on any deal, even though it seemed like there were some some really good offers on the table. Um, you know, and now he's had three knee knee surgeries. He's coming off of Tommy John. He's only made you know I think three uh, starts since his Tommy John procedure. You know, it'd be kind of crazy to expect he's going to come back the same pitcher. He he has lost a ton of weight. He's kind of reshaped his mechanics, hopefully to take some of the pressure off that knee that he's had so much work on. Um, but I don't think his stuff is quite overpowering. Like a lot of guys coming back from Tommy John, you know, getting the feel for your breaking pitches is is maybe the most challenging part. Uh, Fulmer's first outing in the year, I think he struggled. He didn't look great. I think he's honestly looked, you know, his stuff has probably looked increasingly good since then. He talks confident. Today, he, he allowed three earned runs and in three innings, including two home run balls. But he said he just felt increasingly better on the mound. I think his slider has actually been pretty good. His fastball velocity um, uh, still kind of wouldn't its way up. But, uh, you know, he hit 95 on the gun a couple of times today. I think he's in pretty good shape it's one of those things that's just going to be a process the tigers are going to limit him to three innings a little bit longer um you know will we see al rookie of the year michael fulmer you know will we see trade deadline headliner michael fulmer i don't know but i think there's still something left in the tank there um i you know we might not really see we'll probably get a better idea in 2021 right i think michael fulmer needs a little more time to get used to pitching in major league games to come back from this Tommy John. And then we can really find out what he's going to be. His outings have been not stellar, but I think encouraging. And you just have to hope he continues on that track. Yeah. I just, I keep thinking that if man, if Boyd and Fulmer can bounce back with these young starting pitchers that are coming up behind them, that are in double-A and triple-A, the Detroit Tigers could have a really scary starting rotation for teams having to face. And then after drafting Spencer Torkelson, they'll start developing the prospect players, uh, the position players, and then then their rebuild will be done, and then they'll be competitive again in the American League Central. But obviously they really need uh, Boyd and Fulmer to bounce back in order for that timetable to work. And you can follow Cody on Twitter. He does a terrific job covering everything about the Detroit Tigers. He's at Twitter 
at Cody Stavenhagen, and you can read his excellent work covering the team at The Athletic. And Cody, great stuff. Thank you so much for joining the Sox Machine Podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, we'll look at the White Sox probable pitchers for this week's Tiger Series. From earaches to strep tests, there's Clinic at CVS. See a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials. Or see us online with telehealth options. That's healthier made easier. Visit Clinic at CVS today. Services vary by location. See MinuteClinic.com for details. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. Jim Margulis joins me again on the show as we look at the White Sox probable pitchers for this upcoming series against Detroit. On Monday night at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, it'll be Gio Gonzalez on the mound for the White Sox. On Tuesday at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, it'll be Dylan Cease again facing the Tigers in back-to-back starts. Wednesday at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, it is to be announced for the White Sox. But on Thursday at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, it'll be Lucas Giolito on the mound as he should have his easiest test of the 2020 season. Finally, after facing some of the top competition in the American League and the St. Louis Cardinals this weekend, reporters asked about the Wednesday start for Rick Renteria on who could possibly start that game. And Jim Renteria mentioned that Dane Dunning could be a possibility. Is this a good time for Dane Dunning to make his major league debut? Assuming he's, you know, getting the ramp up he needs in Schaumburg. I know that Schaumburg is not a representative competitive environment. I think they're short on hitters. So they kind of just have to make up the rules and, and uh, yeah, kind of try to best replicate the field of major league game. Although it's everybody knows it isn't. Um, But, you know, my concern with bringing Dunning back, you know, at the start of the season, or at least at the first possible opportunity was just watching all the other pitchers fall to, you know, shoulder issues, Lopez, Rodon, Jimmy Lambert had the, uh, you know, forearm issue, but just, it seemed like they, they got tripped up by the ramp up in intensity after an abbreviated, um, spring. So having, having seen what happened to Jimmy Lambert, it's like, well, let's give Dunning a little bit more time and then see what happens. And if they feel confident with Dunning, then I would say, yeah, there's really no reason not to, it's either him or Bernardo Flores. And they did bring up Flores as the 29th band for the doubleheader wasn't used, um, either one of those two guys I think would be good, but I think given Gonzalez is already kind of one kitchen sink lefty, uh, I don't really want to see two of them right now. So I guess, uh, I'd rather see Dunning get the call. Yeah. You know, with Bernardo Flores, not throwing at all this weekend, I thought that was interesting because I would have liked to see him throw and see if he would actually be a viable option for spot starts. But I, I think the solutions or the choices are pretty slim, aren't they, in Schaumburg right now? Because we're hearing that Lopez is throwing again. So his shoulder injury is not as serious as we feared it to be, which is good. I don't remember the last Carlos Rodon update. Uh, where he was throwing at. it 120 feet in the outfield. Uh, I think Daryl Van Scowen or somebody tweeted that seeing him before the game, but okay. I don't think it was a formal update. Got it. But he's active. Okay. So until they're strong enough to pitch again, and they're working towards that, 
I think you're down to Dane Dunning, right? That's the only option you have left in Schaumburg for spot starts? Yeah, Flores, Dunning, and then it's down to, like, trying to use an opener, which they won't do. So, yeah, it's just... Uh, yeah, it seems like as long as Dunning can handle, I mean, like, it, if he falters or, or, you know, only lasts three innings and gets shelled, that's, you know, that's fine. He's a rookie. He's, you know, trying to, uh, it, it's not the most formal of call-ups, so I, I wouldn't blame any rookie for not handling it well. But, you know, given the circumstances and uh, given where he is and, and how he's not going to get competitive innings otherwise, it, I don't think it hurts him. What is the key to this series, Jim, if the White Sox are going to win at least three out of four? Well, you know, it's pretty simple with the offense. Just like the way the Tigers pitching staff is, the just uh, kind of in shambles. And, and you know, it's funny, uh, you know, before the White Sox played the Tigers the first time, you know, people were looking at the standings, seeing the White Sox in fourth place. And I know uh, uh, good old Penals is having some you know, Twitter uh, flamethrower wars about, uh, you know, you know, whether the Tigers were actually better or he had a, he was going overboard or not overboard, but just being very strong about the fact that the Tigers are trash. <laughs> I think that's the words he used. And, uh, you know, that it certainly has bored out. It kind of reminded me of last year with the Mariners uh, starting 13 and two en route to losing 94 games. It kind of reminded me the same thing where just every team gets hot and some teams get hot early and then reality catches up and it seems like that's happening with the Tigers. So, it seems like the White Sox on paper should be able to sweep them. I think the Tigers can't steal a game because, uh, you know, between like they don't seem to really see Daniel Norris well. If he gets a start, it gets multiple innings. Cease is inconsistent enough. Gio Gonzalez struggles to get through five. Like I can see one of those starts going wrong. Maybe Dane Dunning, if he starts, not great. Like I can see something happening to where they, you know, asking for a sweep or expecting a sweep is too much, but. The offense should at least, you know, if they lose, it should be a slugfest. You know, they, they shouldn't be, uh, they shouldn't have really a quiet night in them when you look at the matchups. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the key is five runs per game. The White Sox are seven and one this season when they score five plus runs. The The one loss was on opening day against the Minnesota Twins. So you do the math, they're four and 10 when they don't score five runs. And in, in major leagues right now, the winning percentage for a team that scores four runs, their winning percentage is 452. Winning percentage for a Major League Baseball team in 2020 scoring five runs is 703. Hmm. That is a that is the deciding factor right now. Five runs per game, I think, is the key. If the White Sox can get at least five runs on the board, they should be able to win every single game. But if they win three out of four, I know there'll be a lot of upset White Sox fans uh, for that one loss. Uh, but if they can win at least three out of four and they put themselves at 14 and 12 before this upcoming weekend series against the Chicago Cubs and the Cubs just lost three out of four at Wrigley to the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, so I know that they started off really hot and they were the they had the best record in Major League Baseball. But I'm interested to see on how they bounce back after this weekend. But after the weekend series against the Cubs, the White Sox still stay home. And they have two games against the Pirates, who are terrible. And then three more games against the Royals before they face the Twins again in in Minneapolis. So this, Mm -hmm. theoretically, should be the stretch in which the White Sox pile up wins, Jim, and give themselves a little bit of a buffer before the last 20 games of the season, where it's a heavy dosage of the Twins, the Reds, the Indians, and the Cubs again. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, when you look at the... I guess the reason I'm not sweating these, you know, individual decisions right now is that, you know, it's not a long season, but there's still, you know, 
two thirds of the season left and you know, more than half the teams make the postseason. And that's kind of what I keep coming back to is just, it's not really a real season. Like when it comes to the stakes of a single game, uh, they're not there the way they typically are in a late August pennant race. Uh, so, you know, that's why I'm not all that wrapped up in, in the uh, blow by blow of Renteria's decision-making, especially given that we don't know who's unavailable, but I think, yeah, by the end of that stretch, you mentioned before the, you know, twins show up again and, and Indians, just those, you know, big matchups against tough teams. I would like to see him get to like the sixth spot, you know, just be able to get to right now. They've been kind of bouncing out of the eighth and not really separating themselves. I think the Tigers falling off helps uh, gets out of their way. You know, like that, that fluke getting out of their way is, uh, is helpful. Assuming that the Tigers don't take three out of four, get back in it, but I uh, don't want to jinx them. Not that jinx exist, but anyway, it, it seems like the case where just what, if they can get in the six spots, I think fans might be able to breathe a bit easier uh, and, and be able to relax a little bit. And they should be able to use the stretch of the schedule to get there. Yeah. The White Sox in the next 12 games win eight of those 12. So they go eight and four during this stretch and they put themselves at 19 and 15, uh, which that's what 34 games. So you got 26 more games to go. If you go 500 in that final 26 games of the season and you're four games above 500, you're right at where Jim predicted where the White Sox would be at the beginning of the season in our season preview at 32 and 28. And I think the way that things are going on in the American League, that might not be good enough to finish second in the American League Central, but a 32 and 28 record should be good enough for either the seventh or eighth seed in the postseason. And the White Sox will finally make the postseason and snap as far as the losing streak. Uh, consecutive losing season streak. So I think these next 12 games are important to the White Sox, Jim, because they have to play really good baseball, and they I think they really have to stack up wins because the way that the teams are playing at this moment, that last couple of weeks of the Twins, Reds, Indians, and Cubs, that's how the White Sox end this season. That is going to be a brutal stretch. And if you can go 500 during that final stretch of the season against those teams. Uh, all teams could possibly be going to the postseason this year. Uh, then I think the White Sox could be in a position to still be a seventh or eighth seed. If you struggle over these next 12 games and you go something like six and six and you're still 500, uh, then this could be the White Sox consecutive losing season streak could still happen is the way that I'm, I'm foreseeing this. So yeah. that's why I think the next 12 games are important. This is the opportunity for the White Sox to really stack up some wins. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, to, I guess, put a button on just my general thoughts on, you know, everything we've been talking about is just as long as the White Sox are in third place and they're kind of hovering around the 85-win projection over 162 games, like, it's hard for me to get too mad. <laughs> it just, it's it, you know, it's hoping for more, but just that's what, they were supposed to be, and that's what they are. So cool. Like, I guess that's where I'm at. Yeah, but I can't fault fans for wanting more. Oh, yeah. But just big, big picture. And especially as, you know, the, you know, from a game to game basis, it's just if they stray too far from that, like if they drop three games below 500, that's where you start worrying. But right yeah. now, they've just been on the pace where they should be. And I, I don't, you know, the roster construction seems like the issue. And their strengths and their flaws, the way they balance themselves out is where they are. So, 
Like I, like I said, hopefully they win three out of the next four, and they got a couple games above 500 before they have to face go to Wrigley and face the first place team in the National League Central, the Chicago Cubs. But you guys had questions for us, really good questions for us. So let's answer them next in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting them to us at Socks Machine or posting your questions uh, by becoming a Patreon supporter on our Patreon posts at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And Jim is here to answer your questions. And uh, we have a lot of questions from our Patreon supporters. And as always, thank you guys so much for your support. Our first question comes from Ed Casey, and Ed is asking Jim, after reading Jim's article about Louis Garcia's injury, pointing out the White Sox complete lack of depth in their system on the left side of the infield, I was wondering if you think the White Sox will look outside their organization to add someone with more upside than Ryan Goins and Cheslor Cuthbert. If you do, who might be some plausible targets besides Yomer Sanchez from San Francisco? Yeah, I've seen Yomer's name come up in a bunch of different directions. I know that you mentioned him as a possibility. And it seemed like kind of tongue-in-cheek, but not really. You can speak to that better than I can. Well, as soon as Renteria said that Garcia was out for the enti- pretty much for the entire season because he needs surgery at some point on the thumb, I thought, well, if the Giants are not going to play Yomer Sanchez at all and you just struck a deal for cash considerations for Luis Wasabe, send some cash back and bring back Yomer. You know what he can do for you, and I trust Yomer Sanchez in a pinch defensively more than Ryan Goins. That, that was my thought process on this is somebody you already know. Just bring him back. You know what you get. Don't expect too much. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, I've seen other fans bringing his name up and, you know, we've seen a number of cases where, you know, just familiar names get recycled. But in this case, yeah, there is a lot of sense to having somebody like Yolmer on the roster. The thing with Yolmer, though, and I think the, the thing with finding infield help at this stage is just, uh, I, I think it's tough for a team like the White Sox to find help. One, because they're not in, they're like in the middle of the pack when it comes to waiver order. And I think there are enough teams desperate for help and depth that if anybody comes available, like, you know, on waivers and such, it'll be snapped up. Like I saw the Red Sox claimed, you know, Christian Arroyo, who is just, you know, a decent minor league player, 25 years old, has not, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of uh, been a journeyman at best, you know, in the, in the majors, 215 career hitter, uh, just, you know, not much of a factor, but they need bodies. They need them on the uh, 28 man, uh, 28 man roster. So, you know, he ends up getting snapped up by a team that's pretty high up on the, uh, waiver order. And so I think, you know, anybody who's remotely promising might have a hard time getting the White Sox. I saw Brian Dozier became available. The Mets cut him loose and he's having a terrible start to the season, but that's kind of who you're looking at as far as like, well, he's hit lefties well before and can play third and second. So maybe he's somebody who's better than Cuthbert and give him a shot, but he could also be at the end of his line. And same thing with like a, like a guy like Yomer, he makes sense defensively, but he had a back issue and that's the reason why he didn't break camp with the Giants, and so he's been trying to come back from that. He's been at the alternate training site. Is he going to be 
major league ready by the time they call him back <laughs> and uh, or, or say if the white Sox trade for him like say if at the end of the month right you know d- deadline comes up the giants say like we don't have a spot for you here yomer we'll send you to a place you like um you know professional courtesy and they do that and, and yomer comes to the white Sox not having any major league reps this year what's he going to give them so that's why i think they're kind of in a tough spot and uh, that's why Larry's injury hurt so much, just because he was somebody who was giving you know pretty good bats, at least you know by his standards, uh, all over the place. And you don't feel bad about him being in the lineup at any one particular spot in the order. You don't like giving him any one job, but he can handle a bunch of jobs for a short time. So yeah, that's why I'd, it's it's going to be tough to replace him. And even if they find uh, players who could help. The question is if they'll be ready to is a whole different matter, and that's something I'm more skeptical of. And I don't see the White Sox wanting, given their infield depth with Madrigal and you know Makata Anderson locking down spots. I don't think they're going to overinvest for somebody who's been playing and playing well. So that's I think why they're kind of caught in between. In three years, if this continues to be a problem for the White Sox, is lack of depth on the left side of the infield. I really do wonder if we need to have a conversation again. In hindsight, of maybe the White Sox should have drafted C.J. Abrams and Ed Howard. Well, you know, you know what kind of drives me nuts is you see what Jason Kipnis is doing with the Cubs. Yeah, sometimes yeah, carrying 12, them. <laughs> yeah, twelve oh five OPS and just like you know, he was freely available and nobody expected much of him, but they get that you know quick burst and he, you know, they're they're playing him selectively and such, not asking too much from him, but just like. That's the kind of thing the White Sox struggle to get. Yeah, they get underperformances from uh, proven veterans, and then you know the end of the line veterans often look like end of the line veterans. That would have been, you know, not that uh, the White Sox should have picked up Kipnis, and not that Kipnis would have played for the White Sox uh, because of their infield depth all around. Um, you know, been hard for him to find reps, but just yeah, that's why Dozier's like, yeah, maybe it's not bad, just because similar age, similar kind of feeling but maybe the dead cap bounce will be beneficial the white Sox certainly have seen enough of him and seen him hit really well uh against the white Sox to where like maybe it's worth kicking the tires but i think it's just going to be crossing their fingers and hoping for anything well if nick magical that shoulder doesn't heal up i i think that i think there's more to your brian dozier idea than jim i i wouldn't say that's a bad idea but i don't know like i don't know if the white Sox have clarity at this moment on how much longer Nick Magical is going to be out. I mean, it sounds like they know that he needs surgery in the offseason. So even if he does come back, it's not like he's going to be 100%. Yeah, and, and I've seen some fans saying like, well, you know, he doesn't hit for power anyway, so what's the big deal? And, and <laughs> I guess the consider yeah, the kind of thing I compare it to is like a pitcher who throws, like a crafty lefty who throws 87 and his game's not based around power. And like, okay, that's well and good, but like, if he's throwing now eighty-two, he can't succeed there. Like, it's so magical can succeed with like thirty power, but not twenty power. Right. And kind of the same thing. Just he needs all the power he has, even if it doesn't manifest itself in power stats. Well, Andrew, by the way, great question, Ed. Thank you so much for it. Uh, Andrew is asking about another roster spot, and uh, Andrew Siegel's question is: Is there a player in the organization? who could make better use of Zach Collins' roster spot. I don't understand his purpose on the team. Well, Andrew, it's clearly to make dancing videos after White Sox wins. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's good at that. But no, it really his role is third catcher and his ability to be there 
to allow Rick Renteria to play Yasmani Grandal and, and James McCann in the same lineup. You know, whether it's first base, DH catcher, just rotating through those those three spots. If if Collins isn't there, he's uh you know there would be another third catcher. Maybe Yermin Mercedes would be that nominal third catcher, but just uh you know, Schaumburg is not a realistic hitting environment. It's not a place players are gonna go to improve. It's gonna be a place where they go to, you know, get reps and prove they can hold up physically, I think, but that's about it. So Really, as, as little as Collins is playing, there's nowhere else for him to go. There's no more productive place for him to be. And probably he's riding, you know, shotgun on, on these conversations on the bench and in the clubhouse, pitcher preparation stuff, talking to pitchers, watching their sequences, learning game calling from, you know, what McCann and Grandal are doing. That's probably good enough in, its, in enough of itself. He's not going to get better at catching in Schaumburg. Um and it's, uh, you know, just he's not going to learn from the pitchers down there. So probably as unsatisfying as it is and how little he's going to have to show for it. In terms of stats, probably the best place to use him is in his current role. Now, I think like the one situation I'm keeping an eye on is if Edwin Encarnacion just is not doing anything. I could see the case where maybe Collins gets in that way. You know, gets gets in some favorable platoon situations against righties, gets, uh, you know, three or four starts in a row to show what he can do and, and get some rhythm. Uh, but right now I think uh, there it's just, he's somebody who's caught in the circumstances of having no minor league season to show what he can do or get better with reps. So he just kind of has to get better by osmosis. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your question. And my response to the Zach Collins situation is if James McCann's not coming back next year, he's probably your backup catcher. So I don't see Zach Collins being moved from the White Sox. So at this point, whatever. Keep making those dancing videos when they win. Thumbs up. Uh, Rob Lienemann has a question for us, Jim. And Rob's question (laughs) is kind of funny to me. But his question is, how exactly have the White Sox ended up with so many hitters without plate discipline? Have there been other organizations that have taken notably bad plate discipline hitters and gotten progress? Well, when it comes to plate discipline, it's a hard thing to teach. And it seems like the the stories of like true plate discipline improvement, like pure discerning uh, good pitches and bad pitches, really having a, a like Yasmani Grandal grade eye for pitches just off the plate, that doesn't really happen. Uh, it's it's more of a matter of you know players always having that skill and being useful with the hit tool, being useful in the field, and and getting up to the majors that way. So with the way the White Sox have been built and the way they kind of get there, I think it's a few things. Um, one is that they have preferred you know an athletic uh, type of mold for some of their players, like say you know Luis Robert, they went all out for him. Tim Anderson was a guy they drafted because of his physical. Tools, up-the-middle skills, bat-to-ball type abilities, not his plate discipline. The, you know, he was raw enough, I, I think, uh, coming out of Juco to where didn't really know exactly what he would turn into, You know, especially for somebody who hadn't devoted full-time attention to baseball until late, but the way he's turned in is just a very you know, uh, aggressive hitter. So there's that. Uh, there's also the thing where you know they haven't really been terribly active internationally outside of Roberts. You know, they've been more along the lines of, uh, you know, content to uh, kind of spread around, you know, $1 million deals. They aren't at the top of the classes internationally. So when it comes to like 
who they're drafting, where they're drafting. It's like, you know, internationally, they're, they're not able to get the, the, the top of line talent there that you know, already has the eye, bring that into the organization. It's more about just uh, physical tools and, and, and you know, trying to polish those. So there's that. And then I, I think they've tried to improve it in the draft. And, you know, Zach Collins was supposed to be that major league ready bet who could catch well enough to um, be startable behind the plate uh, with his immense hitting tools. But then the hit tool wasn't there. So his batting eye was great, but uh, too passive to uh, really scare hitters at higher levels. And I th- he did improve a little bit at Charlotte's. Partially the rabbit ball and small park there also helps out, but uh, there's some progress there, which I think is, you know, speaks to Andrew's frustration. The previous question about why, you know, he's just not able to get more playing time. And that's really unfortunate. But then you look at Jake Berger. He was supposed to be that polished hitter with play discipline. He got hurt. Um, you know, they tried to kind of do a cheat sheet thing with uh, polished college hitters like the Alex Call, Jamison Fisher draft. Both were good on base guys. Fisher led the NCAA in OBP, but just didn't have skills around that to get above uh, you know, a ball in a meaningful way. So that didn't work. Moncada was supposed to have a better eye, but his past, you know, that, that batting eye, you know, I think has a little bit of shell shock from all the strikeouts that he had backwards, uh, backwards K's that he uh, racked up in his first full season. So that hurts. And so he's had to adopt a more aggressive mindset to get by with his hit tool. I think, you know, when I look at the hitters, yeah, Eloy Jimenez is one I'm kind of keeping an eye on right now. He's got the big hitting zone and, has to scare pitchers to being more afraid of him. But there are some cases like Edwin Encarnacion is one, Nelson Cruz is one, guys who didn't have great plate discipline, but just, you know, hit and hit and hit and be hit were just like so formidable as 30, 40 home run guys that they just, pitchers had to be more afraid of them and, and afraid of them to the uh, point where they had to take their walks. And I think Jimenez can get there. Uh, Maybe not to that level, but I think he can be like a 50 walk a year guy and, and that helps. And uh, the Cardinals are a good example of that where they don't have any like Matt Carpenter's their one walk monster that they developed, like a hundred walk a year guy. He was 13th round pick. They just, he's somebody who had that batting eye, but they just developed his other tools well enough to support that the way other teams didn't think they could. But you look at the other guys they've they've gotten from uh, more obscure places like lower in the draft, like Paul DeYoung and Tommy Pham and they just are able to develop those skills to where they can bring that decent batting eye to the majors with them. And then when you have a whole lineup of those guys, it, it pays off. Danny Mendick is like the only guy like that with the White Sox to where his pitch selection is really good. Um, he can tell a ball from a strike. He swings at the pitches he should swing at. Uh, he lays out the ones he doesn't. And, you know, he strikes out here and there because he's uh, facing elite stuff. But he, the eye is not the problem. It's just a matter of like, making the right swing tweak or, or, you know, getting the right uh, positioning or, or just the, the way the Cardinals have been able to make those guys work the way the White Sox haven't. It's just, that's what makes them the Cardinals. And that's what makes the White Sox, the White Sox. But that's why I think Andrew Vaughn is just so important for the White Sox, even though he's redundant right now, the, the batting eye he has and the plate coverage, he has that combination. It's just could be so unique to what the White Sox have trotted out that it, it seems like as, movable as he theoretically is he's also a guy the White Sox can't afford to lose so that'll be a curious tension I'm gonna watch to see how it unfolds but if he shows up at the hit tool never quite materializes that's gonna be one I think that's gonna be really painful the way the Jake Berger injuries and Zach Collins uh the, the way they're you know 
the way they stagnated or the way they just weren't able to develop or develop as quickly as they thought, uh, Vaughn's similar stagnation there would hurt. Well, hopefully it doesn't come down to that, Jim. Yeah. Uh, but Rob, excellent question. Thank you so much for asking it. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you would like to submit a question or topic on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine or help support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. Uh, we have coffee mugs now, and it's been great to see people posting uh, their pictures on social media for the coffee mugs, uh, which is great. We still have some for sale, Jim, on the website. Yes. Yeah, and we've added a, a bunch of new supporters who are uh, joined up to, to grab those mugs. That's one way to do it, uh, you know, and we'll be sending those out early next month. Uh, for the new supporters. So yeah, it's uh, two ways to do it. Either you can buy them from the site or uh, support us at the $10 tier. And after two months of supporting, uh, you'll get the mug for, well, not for free, but it's part of the uh, package. Awesome. I like I like being above board. I like including fees in the price. And I like telling people that uh, things aren't free when they're actually paying for them. So right. that's, that's, that's the Sox Machine promise. There you go. And uh, hopefully the United States Postal <laughs> Service will still be in business for us to ship that stuff. Yeah. I, I did find one, you know, my, my local post office, which I liked, was uh, was struggling in that regard. So I had to switch post office to uh, post offices. And I found one that's been, knock on wood, at least to date, uh, more reliable and getting them out there. So we're trying. And I, I know the people at the post office are trying. It's not uh, not good times right now. But uh, here's hoping that, uh, you know, I... Even beforehand, like uh, I know uh, Greg, uh, Greg Nix, or our own Greg Nix was, uh, you know, kind of tweeting about how people are big fans of the uh, post office all of a sudden. And I have tweets going back years saying how much I like to go in the post office. And uh, and yeah, if Stamps.com ever advertise on the show, I would not tell people to not go to the post office if they didn't have to because it's a wonderful place to be. Big fan. Yes. So again, if you get anything from us, and it's a little bit of a delay. Uh, we are trying our best to get that stuff out. But again, thank you guys so much for your support. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I know that it was a lengthy one for you guys to listen to on Monday before the White Sox and Tigers series starts. But there was a lot to discuss. Big thank you to Cody Stavenhagen of The Athletic to join the show and give us some insight about what's going on with the Detroit Tigers. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Is it time for a new heating and cooling system? Turn to the experts at Griffith Energy Services and Carrier today and get 0% financing for 18 months on a new heating and cooling system. Get the comfort you deserve from Griffith Energy Services and Carrier. Visit GriffithEnergyServices.com today for this and other exclusive offers. That's GriffithEnergyServices.com. License number MDHVACR01-2278. Griffith Energy Services. Doggone dependable. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. 
It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.